This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A child is murdered, and the situation is made more heart-wrenching by this. The alleged killer is another child. What's the next step? How do district attorneys decide whether to charge the accused as a juvenile or as an adult? Should brain development play into the decision and the possibility of rehabilitation? Stan Garnett faced these questions during the nearly 10 years he served as district attorney in Boulder County. And with a high-profile case now in the news in Denver, he joins us with some perspective. Hi, Stan. Hi, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing well. So earlier this month, 16-year-old Jenny Bunsen was charged in the death of her 7-year-old nephew, Jordan Vong. Denver's DA, Beth McCann, has charged Bunsen as an adult, first-degree murder, How difficult is that choice? It's a really difficult decision, Ryan. It's uh, probably uh, the most difficult decision that a district attorney has to make. And to put it in perspective, it's very rare. Uh, In my almost 10 years, I had 11 cases where we charged a juvenile as an adult, and that was out of a total of probably 4,000 juvenile cases that my office prosecuted. So, It's a difficult, it's an important decision, but it's also very rare. When you say that it's rare, do you mean in your district under your leadership, or do you mean rare in general? In other words, district... um, Actually, both, Ryan. uh, It's very rare uh, in any district on a statistical basis. Uh, We were particularly careful, I think, in Boulder about when we charged... um, a juvenile as an adult, but it's a decision that most district attorneys conclude occasionally needs to be made. Uh, To be clear, our goal is not to parse the choice that Beth McCann made in Denver, but really to understand what goes into this decision. I will say that we invited her onto the show. She told us now wasn't the right time. Our invitation stands. But in those dozen or so cases where you decided to charge a juvenile as an adult, what were some of the factors that went into that? Well, the, the, really the two most important factors are how serious is the alleged crime and what is the age of the, um, I guess, three. How serious is the alleged crime? Is the alleged defendant over the age of 16? And what is his or her background? In other words, is there an indication of a pattern of violence, of a pattern of uh, dangerous behavior that contributed to the crime that occurred. Right. We use this term juvenile, but there's a lot of range within that. I mean, someone could be 17 and a half. Someone could be, as you say, as young as 16. Uh, So does that play into it? How juvenile a juvenile is? Because what you're trying to evaluate is whether the options that are available through the juvenile court system in filing uh, charges on um, a young person merely as a juvenile give you enough options both to protect the community, which is a priority, and also to make sure that there's an appropriate uh, level of consequence for whatever the alleged crime is. And then finally, that you have enough time to work with the young person uh, to provide treatment if you think treatment can be effective. What is the youngest that someone can be tried as an adult? In Colorado, it's very difficult uh, to file on anyone uh, as an adult uh, under the age of 16. Under 16. And we also, Ryan, I was very involved, as was Beth, in an effort to reform Colorado juvenile law uh, four or five years ago to return 
um, to judges the ability to review a district attorney's decision uh, to file on a juvenile as an adult, because I felt it was an important enough decision that as a matter of due process, uh, a judge should always be able to review that decision. Did you do that because you thought some district attorneys weren't making the right choice? Well, it was hard for me to say that definitively um, because I didn't know the facts of their cases. But I do believe that for the public to have confidence in this process and the decisions that are being made, it's good for the public to know that a judge can come in and review that decision. Okay, you talked about the differences between the juvenile system and the adult system in terms of rehabilitation, in terms of punishment. Uh, what what can the juvenile system do that the adult system can't and vice versa? Help us understand what goes into that decision. Sure. Well, the major difference in the adult system is <clears throat> that there are much longer um, sentences available and also terms of probation available that can be helpful if you're dealing with a particularly disturbed young person who you believe needs to have um, a period of incarceration and perhaps treatment after the incarceration. The other, um, uh, the juvenile system is really designed to deal with um, behavior that is unique to juveniles, uh, much of it uh, vandalism and this kind of uh, behavior uh, to immediately get juveniles into treatment and kind of uh, uh, integrated back into school, et cetera. Sometimes when you have these very serious crimes committed by a young person, there's a feeling that, that those options are just not proportionate hmm. and are not um, uh, 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 appropriate. And, and I think <clears throat> one of the best examples, Ryan, is the Austin Sig case that occurred and can we can talk about because it's through uh, the system. Austin Sig was 17 when he kidnapped and murdered a little girl in his neighborhood. That's right. And that case was filed on as an adult and he was convicted of first degree murder. This was Jessica Ridgway. That's right. Uh In 2012. Okay, so much to weigh in this decision. How quickly do you have to make the decision? Well, you have to make the decision pretty quickly, but you can also usually have to make it within 72 hours of the person being taken into custody, how you're going to charge the case. However, uh, we had a number of cases where we charged as an adult originally, and then as the case moved forward, we eventually worked out a resolution uh, that included putting the case back into juvenile court. Ah, what would make you change your mind? Well, uh, we let me give you an example. We had a case that was covered quite ex- extensively in Boulder uh, against a defendant named um, uh, De Bartolome, who had put a bomb in Centaurus High School. And uh, the school had been evacuated, and there was a lot of dispute about whether it was a real bomb and whether there really was a threat, but it was a lot of um, impact. We charged him as an adult with very serious uh, charges. He was held in custody in the juvenile system for a while, and we had extensive evaluations done of him and eventually concluded that um, the best way to manage him was to kick the case back to juvenile court and work on probation out of the juvenile system that assured that he finished his education, that he got some psychological treatment, and that when he was done with all of that, when he turned 21, that he would be able to move forward with his life. So that's an example of where you can um, move the case back to juvenile court. 
You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is former district attorney in Boulder, Stan Garnett. He's giving us some perspective on what goes into the decision to charge someone, a juvenile, as an an adult or not. Uh, This is in light of a case in Denver in which a 16-year-old killed her seven-year-old nephew, Jordan Vong, allegedly. Uh, Jenny Bunsom is her name. And uh, Denver's DA, Beth McCann, has charged Bunsom as an adult, first-degree murder. We're getting some perspective on what goes into that decision. Um, what about the views of those associated with the victim? Do you ever ask them uh, for input on what types of charges should be filed? Well, yes, absolutely. Um, it's very important that, to, particularly in an, an emotional and violent case like this, that one is in close contact with the victim throughout the process. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, the way I ran my office, um, although we were communicating with victims and explaining the decisions we were making, I tried to be very clear that the decisions about the charges we were filing were based on the evidence and what the law was, and um, not based on how emotional the case might have been, et cetera. So, yeah, you want to have extensive uh, conversations with the victim's family, and particularly, I don't know anything about the facts of the case that Beth just charged, but it looks like everybody knew each other in this case. So it would not be uh, insignificant to get the opinion of um, other family members about um, what was going on with this young woman's, in this young woman's life in making a decision about how to charge the case. Stan, it seems like in the last several years, a lot has emerged from the scientific community about brain development in young people. And I wonder to what extent district attorneys look at that and consider that in this? Um, A lot has uh, developed in that area. And in fact, the U.S. Supreme Court has recognized the importance of that in three different cases recently. Uh, Juveniles do need to be treated differently, and district attorneys do uh, look at that issue. However, it's not a bright line. It's not like when one turns 18, uh, one is immediately mature and able to make adult decision-making, or that there aren't some pretty adult decision-making uh, capacities under 18. But it is a factor that needs to be looked at, and that's the reason that most juvenile uh, cases remain in the juvenile system. Must you also give some thought to what the conditions will be for the juvenile if they go to adult prison? Uh, aren't many of these folks sequestered? Uh, they're not in the general population, and and that's something that they might live with for years as they essentially come to come of age behind bars. Yep, that's definitely an issue. The uh, Colorado prison system is doing a better and better job of providing appropriate um, uh, facilities for young people that have been charged with or convicted of violent crimes. But it's definitely a factor that one looks at, because as I always would. As I talk to my deputies and victims' families, et cetera, with all but a very few cases, the defendant is going to be back in the community eventually. And you want to make sure that the process of being um, in custody has not made the person more dangerous than they would have been otherwise. Hmm. You have to keep your eye on the long view in that regard. According to the Sentencing Project, this is a Washington, D.C. nonprofit dedicated to sentencing reform. There are more than 2,000 juveniles sentenced to life without parole. Uh, Indeed, the Supreme Court has said that life without parole is an especially harsh punishment for a juvenile. Uh, Colorado has banned life without parole for juveniles, but that wasn't retroactive. So 
to wrap up, there there are some folks in limbo, right? There are, and I've been advocating for a number of years that uh, district attorneys need to be proactive in addressing those cases, and we need to help the legislature pass legislation that will let us address those sentences. Stan, I'm grateful for your perspective. Nice to talk to you, Ryan. Stan Garnett was district attorney in Boulder County for almost a decade, and we talked about the decision to charge juveniles as adults. Nearly half of Colorado is experiencing extreme drought, some of the worst of it on the western slope. Grand Junction is under mandatory watering restrictions, and farmers are feeling the heat as well. Janie Van Winkle is a rancher in Mesa County. She's been raising cattle in the area for more than 40 years and says this is the worst drought she's ever seen. She has been helping organize drought workshops to help other ranchers and farmers. Janie, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. What are you seeing that leads you to say this is the worst? Well, we run cattle on the Uncompahgre, and in my lifetime, I've not seen conditions like this. Our ponds typically have 30% or less water than they normally have. A lot of our creeks and our streams and our springs are dry, uh, certainly those are the, the big indicators, as well as what's happening with the vegetation. Tell me about that. What does the grassland look like? It's, it's very, in the, in the high country, it, it seems to be especially uh, prevalent in that as you step across the grass, it just crinkles and crushes. Normally, it would, it would lean over and it just crushes uh, simply to, into very fine particles. The other thing I noticed just in the last week or 10 days, we're starting to see some stress on the aspen, the quakey, I call them quakey trees. Yeah. We're starting to see significant stress. The leaves are not even turning colors. There's some color turn, but typically I'm just seeing them on the ground in the, in the aspen groves. And the smell is very much uh, the smell of fall, if you will. It's, uh, you know, an earthy almost muddy smell, only there's no moisture in it. Huh. Uh, it's it's just extremely dry. It just strikes me that after all these years, you have an intuitive relationship with the land and the environment. And these are all really subtle signals that perhaps if I you know, came into that area, I wouldn't recognize. But you as a rancher with the Longview can. So you've already sold off 50 head of cattle this year. I think that's nearly 10% of your herd. And I understand you think you, you may have to sell off more? That's a, that's a very good possibility. We're, we're looking, we, have a, we have a drought plan on our ranch, looking at uh, different indicators and, and dates and what steps we'll take along the way. And so it certainly is a possibility. Many of our neighbors will be selling much, much more than that. I, I like to think that one of the, the, the terms that I use, we manage for drought on a regular basis. We manage for these kinds of years and just ensuring that the resources are in good condition. But many of our neighbors will, be, will end up selling maybe even half or 75%, and some are liquidating. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see complete liquidations of some herds in the next couple of months, depending on conditions. So help us understand what this means. Uh, why do you have to sell cattle? What is it about the situation that becomes untenable for a rancher? 
there's there's a couple of factors. One is is the bottom line. If you simply cannot afford to feed three hundred dollar per ton hay to a cow and make it make sense on on the bottom line, then that's just. You, it's just what you have to do. You have to make that decision from a financial standpoint. That's that's probably the the biggest factor. And, and is the, that that's because with the drought, the natural grasslands just aren't ample. Well, we're typically in this area in in southwestern Colorado, we may feed for feed hay or some kind of supplement anywhere from two to to four months out of the year. But I spoke with a a rancher out of the Ridgeway area yesterday, and typically they would not come out of the high country until probably mid-October, and they came off August 2nd and sold their calves yesterday in La Junta. So, and and the, the... the economic side of that is those, we get paid by the pound. And so typically those calves would weigh about 600, maybe 700 pounds in October, November. And they're selling those calves today for, and they're probably weighing maybe 350, possibly 400 pounds. And so that's a significant impact to the bottom line. Yeah. I mean, by almost half there. Exactly, exactly. And and there's also the care of the animals, you know, ensuring that they're, they're, they've got adequate feed, adequate water. If, if you cannot provide that, as much as we care about our cows, we care enough to let them go. And so people buy them who are in wetter conditions, more favorable conditions? Do you, I, I don't know if you know that. I, mean, I imagine you take them to auction. You don't necessarily know who is the end user. Well, typically, there's, there's, a couple of, we, there's a couple of things to consider. So the calves being sold at those younger ages, lighter weights, they'll, they'll go into areas that are probably not experiencing the severe drought that we are mm-hmm. and, and go on to, to grass or p- perhaps wheat or corn stubble, something like that. Uh, then, then they will later go into a feedlot. The cows, again, it's a strategic process. So typically we would sell less productive, older cows in our herds. And those cows will go to harvest. Those are the cows that will, maybe we would say, normally keep a cow until she's 12 or 13 years old. But this year we may make the decision to sell the cows that are 8 and 9 years old or have for whatever reason, some sort of problem that intensifies labor and, and just looking at strategically culling the herd. People may know of crop insurance, and the logical question is, are you insured against any of this? Well, no, not as far as liquidating cattle. There are, through uh, farm service agencies, there are some programs that if you come in, you get signed up with FSA, a Farm Service Agency. There is money available to supplement perhaps the feed cost, but it's oh. it's reduced so so significantly that again it helps, but it's certainly not going to solve the problem. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about an aspect of the extreme drought that much of Colorado is experiencing and that is its effects on ranchers. Janie Van Winkle joins us from Mesa County in our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. 
And uh, Janie, you've been organizing these workshops, these drought workshops for other ag producers. What is it uh, specifically, concretely, that folks get out of these workshops that helps make drought perhaps a little less difficult? That's that's an interesting question, Ryan. There's the there's the tangible and the intangibles, if you will. Hmm. What what I've been noticing in the last, I'm going to say, two to three months, is just a a, a big concern. What are we going to do? And sometimes it's really helpful in in any situation to know that there's others in your situation. It's not your fault. It's not something you can control. And we just have to get through this. And I think that ranchers as a whole are are a bit of an independent sort and typically don't share that information. And so bringing people together to understand that it's not your fault, there are others in the situation. So I think that was a big intangible result that was a positive. The other piece is that I saw, I saw some people making decisions that were made in the spur of the moment, made in the heat of the moment, made on an emotional basis. So for example, when I talked about strategically culling your herd, you need to be thinking long term. And culling the cows that have problems, the cows that are older, that are less productive, that's strategic. That's thinking, what am I going to be, what shape will I my herd be in in two to three to four years? If you just randomly sell off cows, that's there may need to be some consideration for that. So those are some of the strategies and some of the discussions that we had through this workshop that was was very helpful to to producers. I'm curious, does the subject of climate change come up in these workshops? I think there's a an, an acknowledgement that we're certainly in a drier period. The last significant drought that I can remember, I was I can say I was a teenager, huh. was in 1977. I remember my folks in in dire straits for for feed and and how to care for their cattle at that time. We saw it again in 02. My husband and I sold half our herd in 02. Very strategically made a some decisions early on that helped us get through that period, although we did have to sell half our herd. And then in 2012, we were in a position personally where we didn't have to sell any of our cows. So I think we've seen these drier, this drier period that we're in, and certainly we need to be managing the resources with that in mind. It sounds to me like it's not front and center, perhaps, in these discussions. I think, again, the focus is that we are in a drier period, and and there's things that are simply out of our control. And at this point, the acknowledgement that we're in a drier period and what what do we want to do about it is is the focus. Janie Van Winkle is a rancher on the Western Slope where there's an extreme drought, and she's been helping organize drought workshops for fellow ag producers. A prominent Republican in Colorado called for President Trump's resignation on yesterday's show. Former gubernatorial candidate Vic Mitchell said guilty pleas by the president's former personal lawyer to an array of charges were, as he described it, the tipping point. That prompted us to reach out to the state's Republican chairman. He says Trump still has strong support in Colorado, and he'd be happy if the president came here. Okay, so Jeff Hayes, the chairman of the Colorado Republican Party, 
as a standing invitation to the President of the United States to come visit Colorado. We have tens of thousands of Republicans that they don't focus on what they see on the major news outlets. They're seeing what is going on at a national level that impacts them in Colorado. They're seeing a booming economy, deregulation of our society. They're seeing a government that is increasingly off their backs. We're rebuilding the military, and that's a critical thing in Colorado, not only to the active duty members, but also to uh, our veterans. And so there's just so much good that is going on in Washington that trickles down into Colorado. It is true that Trump enjoys solid support among Republicans, but his popularity in Colorado, a state he lost in 2016, has fallen by 17 percent since the start of his term. That's according to a June poll from Morning Consult. Jeff Hayes says candidates this election year have to gauge whether having Trump campaign for them would help or hurt. Each candidate in each district, they've got their own messaging, they've got their own demographic, they've got their own voter universe that they're trying to uh, go after. And, you know, they've got to run their campaigns in their own way. In the long run, though, he says the legal problems of Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen, and his former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, won't make much difference to Colorado voters. I think that our gubernatorial debate is congealing around the future of jobs in the state, infrastructure, natural resources, education. And I think that the Colorado voters, they may be distracted by what they see is going on in a New York courtroom. But I think they're smart enough to realize this kind of stuff does not really impact what we do every day on I-25 or I-70 or places in between. And he says party leaders have to make sure voters think about those issues come election time. It's our job as the party to help people uh, regain their focus. What we do in November is going to have a profound impact on the future of Colorado. That is state Republican chairman Jeff Hayes. Shorter school weeks, new graduation standards, a teacher shortage. Those are just some of the realities in schools right now as students across Colorado return to class. CPR's education reporter Jenny Brandine is here with some insight. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Ryan. We saw teachers flex some political muscle in demonstrations at the Capitol this spring. They were calling for more money for public education. Yes, money is the number one issue. But, Ryan, that is why we're going to have a whole show devoted to it uh, next or a whole segment devoted to it next week. But in short, we've just had the first major urban district go to a four-day week. And the reason is lack of finances and the need to attract teachers. So now more than half of Colorado school districts have a four-day week. So you can be sure that other districts are going to really be watching this uh, to see if it's it's a way to indeed attract teachers teachers when they don't have money to pay them more. And this had largely been smaller rural districts making the four-day decision. It's notable then that larger districts are dipping their toe in the four-day waters. Yes, indeed. Uh, It's the first district, and in fact, it picked up quite a bit of national attention because of that. So, um, yes. Yeah. Related to this is making sure that there's qualified teachers in every classroom. Yeah, uh, school districts are really scrambling to hang on to teachers. And as you may know, there's a critical shortage in rural Colorado. They're paid well below the national average. Teachers know that they can make a lot more in other states. And state lawmakers did not address the pay issue this year, nor did they they pass any kind of bill dealing with loan forgiveness, which was was a hope. But they 
did pass a modest uh, package of bills, which should have a little bit of an impact in rural Colorado. Uh, For example, teachers, uh, student teachers may get stipends to to teach there. And also for people who want to get an alternative license and commit to staying in rural Utah, or rural Colorado, sorry, for a few years. You used um, to be in Utah. <laughs> I used to be in Utah. Oh, you know, I'm so used Western. to saying that. Um, <laughs> bills like that. So that we should see some impact. Some impact. Uh, and this is uh, an issue that may play out on the ballot as well, uh, this election. I think another new item that people may not be aware of is there are now new graduation guidelines affecting high school freshmen and sophomores. What do they look like? Yes, this is one of the biggest changes families have seen in a generation. So they'll now have to really pay attention when their kids enter high school. And I think a lot of people don't really know about this. The bottom line is students now have more ways to say, hey, I really deserve a high school diploma. Each of the 178 school districts has its own menu for what graduation guidelines look like. Uh, And tell us about the menu of options to choose from. I mean, they still have to demonstrate proficiency in English and math, I'm assuming. Exactly. Uh, But that could mean that there's a variety of ways to show that. So getting a certain score on the SAT, that's the college entrance exam, scoring a two out of five on advanced placements, uh, maybe getting a certain grade in a college class they take while they're in high school. So most districts are experimenting with a lot of different things, including a capstone project. And you might have heard that term, but Instead of needing a minimum score, let's say on one of the one of the the standardized tests, yeah. uh, they would do a project that shows demonstrates all of their years of accumulated knowledge. So overall, in short, kids will be able to choose from a lot of things like independent study, a class project, or maybe even getting an industry certificate in a in a trade. Boy, this must come as just a great relief to kids who don't do well on tests. I mean, I'm thinking how much I would have liked to do a project like you're describing. What are a few examples of how districts are putting this into practice, Jenny? Indeed. Um, Let's take Park County. So this is a small rural mountain county district, and it's developed a three-pronged approach. So one creates a pathway for students who want to do like a traditional four-year college. Another, you know, I'm not really interested in that or going into debt. So maybe community college. A third is for internship or a work-related career. And this is most the most interesting, uh, Ryan, you might have liked this. Uh, You could basically be finished with the academic side of high school after two years. And then the final two years, you're off campus in some form of internship or apprenticeship. And again, it's changing the definition of what you need to graduate. Uh, Any other examples that stand out? Uh, Canyon City High School, for example, there are five different pathways, a health and business pathway, a STEM pathway, a skilled trades pathway, arts, hospitality and education pathway, and then something called the Tiger Open Pathway. The Tiger Open Pathway. It sounds like Tiger Woods, but that's not the case. (laughs) No golfing in this, but there might be actually. This is for really self-motivated students who want to design what and how they learn. So really non-traditional. Sounds nice, perhaps, to students. Is it too loosey-goosey? I mean, I wonder if there's any pushback. Yes, there are some watchdog groups. And indeed, I know the Colorado Black Roundtable has this coming up as, as an agenda item. People are concerned. Some people are concerned that are these standards really consistent across the state? Does a kid who graduates in Pueblo huh. come out with the same set of skills as a kid in Littleton? And they say some districts, uh, kids will have no trouble meeting these higher bars on the SAT college entrance exams. 
other districts don't really have the resources to help kids meet that higher bar, and those kids will really struggle. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine joins us. We're currently talking about changing high school graduation requirements in Colorado. What is behind this thinking of, of giving kids more freedom? Yeah, I think freedom is is a, is a factor. And like you said, kids are going to be really open about this and excited about this, hopefully. But really, it's a, it's a move uh, away from seat time as the bar for graduation and more getting into what are the skills, what are the competencies uh, that kids need in order to graduate. When you, when you say seat time, I think of it as like credits. You yes. know, it was always a math game. Do I have enough credits? Exactly. Uh-huh. That's what we mean by seat time. And I think the change comes as a response to demands of industry for skilled workers. A lot of industry saying, I can't find the workers I need here in Colorado. The pendulum has really swung far to one side saying all kids need a four-year degree when really, like you said, a lot of kids don't want to get a four-year degree. Maybe they can't afford it. Second, it's not really filling the demands of the economy. So the idea is for kids now to get really some form of post-secondary education, and that could take many forms, and these new uh, graduation requirements reflect that. We are in a moment of a big shift, it feels like to me, Jenny. Yeah, not just with graduation requirements, but I, I think the state is still really grappling with what it is that we want kids uh, to come out of the public education system with. Yeah, which is, I suppose, also about what do we want teachers to do and to be. But expound on that a little bit for me. Yes. On the one hand, teachers have had a lot thrown at them over the past few years. So we've had tougher academic standards, new tests, and we're going to have still new tests this spring, new evaluation standards. And those take up a lot of teachers' time to you know, do a self-evaluation, things like that. Huh. New reading standards for the early grades, but no real money to implement most of that. On the other hand, we have these big societal and cultural changes happening you know, with technology, and no one really knows what the future of work looks like. So So the state is grappling with uh, what does it want schools to focus on? There's an education leadership council that just surveyed Coloradans on which skills and competencies they think are important for kids to learn. Just a few quick examples. Yeah. So literacy, number sense, critical thinking. Do we want kids to know about entrepreneurialism or empathy or problem solving, uh, becoming multilingual? Once these results are all tabulated and they come up with a guiding plan, it will really be up to the next governor or set of lawmakers to decide, you know, do they want to do something with that? and make additional shifts or sharpen the framework for what and how kids learn? Or is it just going to be yet another exercise in studying things? Interesting time to be in education, an education reporter or a kid for that matter. Thanks for being with us, Jenny. Thank you, Ryan. She is CPR's education reporter, Jenny Brundine. So tomorrow, Colorado Matters explores the challenges in higher education with a special presentation from American public media. It's called Changing Class, Are Colleges Helping Americans Move Up? Here's APM Stephen Smith. We know from all kinds of data that, on average, college is a good bet if you want to improve your economic circumstances. People with bachelor's degrees earn 84% more over a lifetime than people with just high school diplomas. And if you don't have a degree, you're about twice as likely to be unemployed and more than three times as likely to live in poverty. And it's not all about money. People with college degrees tend to be healthier, they're more likely to vote and to volunteer, and their kids are more likely to go to college too. But not everyone who goes to college gets all these benefits. 
Changing Class looks at the haves and have-nots when it comes to higher ed. Why do some colleges do better than others? And what can be done to ensure that all students get a fair shake? A special presentation from Colorado Matters tomorrow. Comedian Chris Charpentier often pokes fun at his own short stature. It's not fair to make fun of me for being short because you don't know what I'm working with. All right? That's right. I'm serious now. My mom, five foot one. My dad, five foot two. Yeah. So me getting to five foot five, I think I did pretty damn good for myself. Thank you. (laughs) That was Charpentier's network stand-up debut on Jimmy Kimmel last year. The Denver-born comedian who now lives in L.A. is back in Colorado for a bit. Earlier this week, he recorded his first stand-up comedy album at Denver's Bug Theater. And later this week, he performs at the High Plains Comedy Festival. Hi, Chris. Hey there. Thanks for having me. What are the benefits of being short? I mean, I feel like so often people talk about drawbacks, but you have to answer this G-rated. I've never hit my head on anything. (laughs) So that's pretty good. That is pretty good. That's pretty good. And I hear it's warmer, you know, closer to the ground. I don't know if that's true, but I feel, you know... Like it's warmer the closer you are. I don't know if that's... (laughs) I think it maybe makes more sense that it would be the closer you are to the sun, maybe it's warmer, but I don't know. That's not true because then the 14ers would be very warm, but they're cooler. See? Maybe it's cooler up here. I don't know. You brought science right into it. Classic public radio. That's right. Here you are. (laughs) Is it true that you discovered your love for comedy and performing while enrolled in a drug rehab program? Yeah. I mean, at least that's where it started. It wouldn't be until years later that I really started doing stand-up and all of that. But uh, I met a friend there who inspired all of it. I would have never done anything. I was always too scared to go. I tried out for a play in seventh grade, I think. I auditioned for a play, Uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. That should be a shoe-in. For me, I could have been one of the dwarves for sure. I was going to ask you, it wasn't Snow White (laughs) that you were in the running for. No, I was for one of the dwarves and... (laughs) I did not get it. So I was like, well, I'm never doing this. It was too scary. So I would have never done it without meeting this friend who inspired all of it. And is it that this friend believed in you, thought you were funny? What? Both of those things. And he had already done a lot of comedy himself. So it seemed, and I thought he was hilarious. And him saying that I was funny was like, well, if he's funny and he's a comedian and he thinks I could do it, maybe I should give it a shot. Huh. And then eventually, I mean, he actually, I truly would have never done it without him. He signed me up at Comedy Works for their open mic comedy night without me knowing for... It takes usually like two months to get on uh, there, consistently signing up every week because so many people do it. Oh. And uh, he signed me up without me knowing for about two months and then was like, hey, you're on next week. And I was like, okay. That sounds terrifying. It was a little terrifying. But I, by that point, I had been helping write his jokes for him. Or, okay. Some sort of something. And we had done a little bit of things together, kind of an improv deal. So, How how did I, it go down with the audience? Uh, I remember it going well, but mostly I remember basically like blacking out. <laughs> I don't remember anything. I remember going on stage. It was so scary. I said something. People laughed. And then I left and was like, oh, my God. It was so – I really kind of blacked out. But I also was like immediately like that was the best thing I've ever done. I mean, it's interesting that you use the term blackout because Mm -hmm. it's one that I normally associate with substance use. Yes. But this is blacking out sort of for a better reason. Oh, much better. (laughs) Yeah. Much better. Yeah. Do you have stage fright sometimes? Every time. Every time. Every time. Yeah. Up until the show starts, I'm kind of a mess. I uh, A lot of pacing around. I feel like I'm going to puke often. 
Uh, but as soon as I get on stage, it's gone. And I don't know why that happens, but I'm glad it does. <laughs> I think this is true for lots of performers. Mm-hmm. Once and, that it, first laugh happens, it's fine. It's, I feel more normal on stage than off stage. That's where I'm supposed to be. Well, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. What, you just feel awkward off stage? Yeah, just, that's the on stage, that's the best version of me, period. <laughs> it's practiced, it's, it's scripted, it's perfect. It's the best version of me. I'm excited. I'm I'm more apt to have fun. All of those things. And then off stage, it's like, I'm nervous. Don't talk to me. <laughs> it's scripted on uh, stage? The, ish. I'm always, ish. Ish. At least I know what I'm going to do. And, and then if it gets a little off the rails because of the crowd or because of something else, then you just go with that. But I usually go up with a with a pretty good plan of what's going to happen. Okay. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And ahead of the High Plains Comedy Festival, we're talking with a Denver-born comedian Chris Charpentier. Uh, he also just recorded his first stand-up comedy album at the Bug Theater in Denver. Are you willing to play a game with me? Of course I am. Okay. Do, are you aware of table topics? Do you know about this? No. It's these cards, and if you are in company that doesn't naturally have an inclination towards interesting conversation, okay. <laughs> you can read these cards, and they have suggested questions oh, okay. to get Great. things started. Yeah, that sounds fun. We've never done this on the show. Okay. Okay. I'm ready. Most beloved childhood memory. Ooh, boy. That one, I've, I have a lot. I had a good family growing up, but I'm going to go ahead and say going to my grandparents' house in Rhode Island and going swimming with all of my cousins and brothers and everybody. Okay. We did that most summers. You can swim. Do you still mm-hmm. swim? Now swim you... all the time. Yeah. My family's big into water skiing, so but he grew up swimming and water skiing and all of that and still do it. Uh, when was This is a weird one. When mm-hmm. was the last time you listened to the sound of your own breath? What the heck? I know. I, I thought, who's going to... I thought these were good questions. No, I didn't say anything about good. <laughs> the last time I listened to my own breath yeah. uh, was probably... Mm, that's a t- probably that I can remember the night before a big show when you're just laying in bed and can't sleep because mm-hmm. you're excited. But I wouldn't say that I was listening to my own breath. But you might become aware of your yes. own breathing. Is, that, is it often that you are sleepless the night before? It's often I'm sleepless, period. I'm just not a great sleeper. But yeah, before is the worst. Uh, and usually the night after is the best. It's like there's all this release. Of, it's usually more than of like, oh, I'm so glad that was like a good show. It's more like, oh, thank God it's over. And then it, and it, then you crash. It's 40 hours of sleep. Yes, exactly. Uh, okay, this is the last one we'll do okay. from Table Topics. When was the last time you lost your temper? Oh, boy, that's a good one because I don't really – I don't really – I don't, when I was a kid, uh, real young, I remember my parents wouldn't let me do something. Like, I don't know, go over to a friend's house or something. And I got real mad about it. And I went into my garage and with a baseball bat, I hit one of my bike tires, you know, because I was mad, just like, Ugh. yeah. And the bat flew back up and hit me in the face. And I was like, well, that's not worth it. <laughs> so, <laughs> it so I don't really do that anymore. I, don't, does, I try does, not to lose my temper. It was a good lesson, very young. It's does not, not pay it. to lose your temper. It doesn't. You might get hit in the face with a baseball bat. Okay. I, I've been watching a lot of comedians in cars getting coffee. Sure. Chris Sharpentier. Have, mm-hmm. you, have you seen that show? Yeah. So Jerry Seinfeld shoots the breeze with other comics. Mm-hmm. They often talk about how comedians' minds work, mm-hmm. where they get their material. And I find it fascinating because so often comedians will see some mundane thing mm-hmm. and find 
that it's hilarious. Yes. Is is that true for how your mind works? I think so. It's more often things that other people would pass up and you just kind of walk by and don't really notice. Can you give me an example from recent life that's become a joke? Um, that's become a joke. Um, let's see. Hmm. I've really I mean, asked I, you to be an improv comic no, totally, on this show, by totally the way. Perfect. I have no problem with that. It's good. Uh, I mean, I haven't turned it into a joke yet, but yesterday I got ID'd for a movie. For a movie? For a movie. What were you seeing? Uh, Hereditary. It's a rated R movie, but I'm 35 years old. So you only, <laughs> you only have to be 18 to get into a movie. It did not make any sense to me. When she asked me for my ID, I was like, that's hilarious. So eventually that's going to turn into a joke. Do you think it's a stature thing? Maybe, but I also, I mean, like, if I was freshly shaved, I could kind of see it. But I have, like... Stubble. Stubble. I look older than 18, at least. You look ancient. Thank you. I'm kidding. Thank you. (laughs) I understand that you prefer to avoid politics in your stand-up. I'm not smart enough to talk about that stuff. My opinion can get swayed immediately in any direction. (laughs) If you have a good enough point, I'm like, oh, you're absolutely right. For anything. You have to have conviction, you're saying, to be a political comedian. I think so. Because if you go up on stage and say you have an opinion about something and someone from the audience challenges you, you have to be able to back that up. And I can't. <laughs> I have no facts. I just have feelings. So I just – I tend to stay away from that stuff. I don't have facts. I just have feelings. I love mm-hmm. that line. <laughs> All right. You moved from Denver to L.A. in 2015. Uh, did, you, did you have to do that for your career? I don't know if that's uh, – I had to do it. For myself as a human, I think it was important for me to leave Denver and everything that made me comfortable. And uh, and then I also – there's a part of you that wants to know if you can hang with the big boys or however you want to say it. You know, you want to be one of the best comedians and see if you can go and do it where all the best comedians live and try to do all the things. The next big step in your career, get on TV and, and do all of those things, which are much harder to do from Colorado. I admire that idea of getting out of your comfort zone. I think that takes a lot. Yeah, it's important. I think it's important for all comedians to do that at all times. Nothing fun ever happens in the comfort zone. Well, thanks for being with us. Don't hit your head on the way out. I won't. Hey, thanks, Mom. She listens every day, so I wanted to say hi, Mom. Oh, that's very kind. Absolutely. What's her name? Kathy. Hi, Kathy. Yeah, thank you. It would be nice if you finished every show that way. With hi, Kathy. From from now on. (laughs) (laughs) He is comedian Chris Charpentier, born in Denver, now lives in L.A. He's in Colorado this week for the High Plains Comedy Festival, which starts today. Finally, for this show, a tribute to an American musical legend. This is music by Leonard Bernstein. He would have turned 100 this Saturday, and orchestras and classical stations around the country are paying tribute. He was one of the few household names in classical music. As a conductor, he led several of the world's most respected orchestras. He introduced millions of people to classical music through his televised Young People's Concert. And he wrote music like West Side Story and this piece, Candide. Marin Alsup is conductor laureate of the Colorado Symphony and one of Bernstein's protégés. She talked with our colleagues at CPR Classical about the Leonard Bernstein she knew and his genius. It really, for me, lay in how he was able to connect the different dots in life 
so that what he did as a conductor, of course, informed what he did as a composer, which informed what he did as an educator, which informed what he did as a TV star. And he was a, such an organic whole that I'm not sure if he pulled one of those blocks out or changed it, um, what kind of effect it would have had. You can hear much more about Bernstein's compositions, his legacy, on CPR Classical's Great Composers podcast. Find it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for spending time with us in the best of all possible worlds. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR News.